Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. Today, we have a great guest with us, Andrew Condoris, a writer of supernatural, cosmic, metaphysical, and weird horror. He is a recent graduate of MFA Creative Writing Program at Fairleigh Dickinson University. His short stories have been published in various literary magazines, online, and in print. And all his arcane works can be found on his website, www.notesfromthevoid.com. He has been working for the last few years on a novel titled Negative Paradise, which is about a stalker who inadvertently finds himself joining a cult. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Well, thank you. Well, feeling good to be here. Awesome. So what got you into writing? Um, what got me into writing? Um, I was <clears throat> uh, about eight years old, and I was looking out the window, and I couldn't see, like, there was, like, a skyline, you know, the New York skyline, um, and I, I kind of wondered what would happen if, like, everything kind of flipped upside down, like, if they were suddenly the stars or whatever, and... And I think I wrote something down, like something stupid, some little poem that an eight-year-old would write. And from that point forward, I was hooked. So I've been doing it ever since. So you saw the world upside down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed, it is upside down. It sure is, especially these days. How did you develop such a distinct style? Um, it... I mean, it, it takes a long time to develop a distinct style. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with putting yourself um, out there again and again and um, dealing with rejection and dealing with mistakes and um, just like failure and things that sometimes work out, sometimes don't. But uh, oh, that's my dog. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so sometimes, uh, I think Jerry Garcia said it best. He said, style is the mistakes you make. So I think what he meant was like, if you played the piece perfectly, uh, the way it was meant to be played, it wouldn't sound like you. So, right. so it's all about, not necessarily mistakes, but about um, sort of telling your stories and then just getting rid of all the bullshit and being true to yourself and good stuff like that. Yeah, I make a good point. Like maybe our mistakes are not actually our mistakes, but actually our true selves trying to express it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of, um, a lot of the best writing usually is that it's um, people who sort of gone off the deep end and gone in uh, as far <clears throat> left field, as possible, uh, you know, intentionally, unintentionally, doesn't matter. But um, the important thing is that, and and this is for all writers, you know, because I, I teach a writing workshop, so this is my, my little pitch. So it's good to go out into the left field, but you have to make sure you catch the ball. <laughs> Up there, very important, very important. Can't just go over the wall. Well, you can go over the wall as long as you catch it, but you know you gotta you got you gotta make sure you catch the ball. It's it's a game, it's a game, you know. Indeed. So, what do you use for inspiration? 
Um, well, the number one uh, mantra is always to be reading um, other people's work and um, and also to read things that may, maybe wouldn't sort of jive with what you normally read. Um, uh, you want to be in an expansive mode so that you're sort of um, taking in things from all different perspectives. That way, inspiration strikes you um, from things that you might not normally think would be um, inspiring. So, um, so inspiration for me, like, like the other day, I was raking, um, at, or my my dog is digging holes in the backyard, and I was raking up, you know, some of the mess that that she had left, and. I found someone had buried a uh, smartphone, like a, an iPhone in, in the backyard. And so it was like, okay, that could be something, you know? So that could be a story, that could be inspiration. But the point is, is to be open to that kind of stuff and to throughout the day, um, if things, you know, because people get caught up in, in all the crap, like, you know, your job, your mortgage, your whatever it is, but you have to stay open to um, your intuition and, and weird things that come up throughout the day. So. so like you have to kind of be in the moment and sort of in touch with what's going on. Yes, and if you're not, um, that's okay too. It's just um, like train, you have to train yourself to um, be open to that. And, and then meditation's good for that. and um, and you know other things but but really you have to be willing to uh be open to that to, to the unknown and to things that don't necessarily make sense right away so uh, i was reading on your blog some of your stories and my interpretation of some of the characters that they were sort of like anti-heroes similar to like what Kurt Vonnegut or Charles Bukowski would create. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, those are two definite, uh, you know, um, sort of, uh, inspirations for me, maybe more Charles Bukowski than Kurt Vonnegut. But, um, but I think, um, w what's interesting about the anti-hero is that he's not really anti-hero. He's, he's actually, um, striving to, um, as, as time goes on and as I get older, I start to notice that, um, the anti-hero is not necessarily trying to, to, he is a hero because he's trying to deal with the circumstances as they are presented to him. So, um, a lot of my characters in the stories, they might seem disgruntled or, um, sort of, you know, they, they've sort of given up on certain, or they're hopeless or what have you, but it's really more a matter of starting from ground zero and starting over again and starting from, um, you know, like the most basic aspect of yourself, that primal aspect. So, um, you know, you're going to be sort of animalistic and you're going to be well, I want this and I want that, and you know. So, so it's good to to. I, I think the antihero is is a thing that 
it's it's starting to change now because people are starting to realize, like Trump, for, for all intents and purposes, is an mm-hmm. anti-hero, but that doesn't make any sense, you know, because there's no there's no empathy and there's no um, imaginative element there, or um, so, you know, it 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 it's it's important to remember that that that. Um, these people that are in my stories, the people that are disgruntled or pissed off or whatever, or um, sort of, um, uh, what's the word? They're kind of fractured. Um, you know, that's that's not something that's, I don't think it's something that's new or um, unusual. I think it's something a lot of people are experiencing, particularly today. So, um, yeah. It's interesting. It's ironic, you know. It's like human beings are like a primate that experiences irony on a regular basis. Yes, yes. We we know we're going to die, unlike um, my dog or you know a cockroach or something, and that creates a uh, huge uh, uh, problem. <laughs> so. So, so, so when you have antiheroes or disgruntled people or, or just um, characters that are sort of blank or unmarked by anything or nameless, even um, <clears throat> this isn't this, this is that part of that experience of this recognition that um, that you know you, you're mortal and that you and that you know you're you're insignificant in, in many ways, you know. Definitely. So in my experience with horror, there's typically two types of horror, supernatural horror and real life horror. And when I read your stories, you have an excellent talent for interweaving the two together. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you. I'm glad you noticed that. Um, yeah, they, they, um, they go hand in hand because, um, well, I, you know, I did a podcast a few years ago and, and well, it was kind of a, um, like one person told my story and then I told their story and we all switched around and, um, uh, and we, we had written pieces for it. And in the piece that I wrote, um, I had mentioned the, the, the film and the, the book It by Stephen King um, <clears throat> deals with cosmic horror, which is sort of the Lovecraftian idea of, um, of, uh, what we call cosmic insignificance, so or indifference. So it's the idea that um, that the universe is uh, is hostile towards us, but but it's also indifferent. And um, so su- any supernatural force or uh, alien force or what have you um, doesn't regard us the way um, you know uh, some sort of a more new age woo woo type of approach, you know, that you're important and valued. It's more like, no, you, you don't matter. And, and, um, and we're, we're going to step on you like a, like a, a bug or something like that. But in, in the piece that I had written, it this speaks to what you're, you're saying. Um, I, I kind of find, realized at the end of the piece that like that aspect of, um, horror, uh, cosmic horror and cosmic indifference, it starts inside us um, more than anywhere else. 
Um, so when we read horror, we're, we're horrified by what we're reading and or what we're seeing. But the real horror is the fact that we sort of already have that in ourselves in a sort of collective, uh, unconscious way. So, yeah. so when I in in the story when, um, you know, someone does something horrible to someone else, there is that, and human beings can be awful to each other. But then, uh, in a supernatural sense, um, you know, there's so much more going on. And there's also opportunity for redemption because if you have both of those things playing, like vying for your soul, as it were, or vying mm-hmm. for your attention, then you start to recognize that you can, that there's, there's hope, there's liberation from that because you don't have to accept either. You don't have to accept um, the Lovecraftian idea or the, the, the uh, reality of being murdered or raped or mugged or whatever it is you you can not that those things don't happen but it's that it's not it's it's it doesn't have to be the only definition of who you are it it definitely is an aspect of who you are but because of the supernatural and because of these other aspects and because of the collective unconscious and because of the imagination you can move there's more leg room to move around and to, to to free yourself up i guess so you're kind of saying like there's a moral to the story. Yeah, usually there is. And what I like, it, the model lately for my stories is horror, 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 horror. And it's kind of like, okay, so, you know, you have something, oh, but yeah, not always. I mean, in certain instances, it's not always the model that I use. But, but I like the idea of... Um, Seeing things as as they are, um, you know, like you know, you open up uh, the newspaper or you, you turn on the TV, and it, it is just rife with tragedy um, and and just despicable behavior and absolutely horrible things. People doing horrible things to each other. Um, <clears throat> so, what I like is the idea of transcending that and moving beyond that. And um, that that's not that's not I think an easy thing to do. So I like to kind of work on it for myself by writing these stories, and hopefully help others with it. That's really you know something that this world needs is to be able to take a character as sort of like an anti-hero type of character, have them come through some kind of horror. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel, which brings people hope. Yeah, yeah, and <clears throat> it's tricky because um, um, you want to give people hope, but but for some people, um, hope is uh, silence or or uh, to use a Buddhist term like nirvana, you know, like to 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 extinguish that flame and to move beyond consciousness and to, so, so somebody, in other words, there has to be some way to tell a story where the person um, dies or commits suicide or murders someone, but transcends. There still has to be that element because we have to move beyond the physical aspects of, of the world. And that's, that's the tricky part is, is making sense of that, you know, 
um, and, and, and understanding that because I think there's so much tragedy in people's lives that they use stories to escape. And I understand that, but I think in this country, escapism has become a real problem. And so I think it's important to, to, to sort of go in the other direction a little bit and to resist that a bit and um, to not, you know, just do reboots and remakes and, and, um, and just do superhero movies where there's no element of, uh, uh, I think Martin Scorsese called it like redemption. You know, there's no redemption arc, you know, these aren't people that have done truly horrible things. They're just suddenly they're in, in view with power and it, 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 it's not enough. There's more to it than that. And, and the truth is you're not going to escape. Like, like I said earlier, you know, we're all mortal. We all are aware of the fact that there's, there's a, um, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's, there's a exit to all of this. And so I think with my stories, I try to, to embrace that, understand it, and transcend it. So possibly death is not the worst thing that could happen to a person. Exactly, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Death is not the worst thing that can happen. Um, yeah, and, and, and also, you know, you can couple that with the worst thing that has happened. And again, this, this comes back to quasi-Buddhist ideas and other ideas that you know the worst thing that can happen to you is being born <laughs> is coming into existence and having this consciousness that has to uh sort of uh deal with like uh, just you know whatever it is that they have to deal with um that's on such a scale that's almost un unmanageable um and yet inescapable so so it, it's wrestling with those two extremes that I like to play with and, and to, to again, if the word that keep, keeps coming up is transcending all of that and moving beyond that. So, yeah. So how did you come up with the name for your blog, Notes from the Void? Oh, um, it's interesting, actually. I was reading a lot of Rumi, and um, one of, um, in Islam, uh, the fifth element, and, and I think in other religions as well, uh, at least in terms of the mystics of those religions, um, the, fifth uh, the fifth element is void. And um, so you have earth, air, wind, fire, and then you have uh, void. And um, so what's interesting is that in Islam, it's, it's um, a... Uh, a place of creativity so something comes from nothing so um, so I think that that's why for the most part um, also in in recent years um, especially since I went to um, uh, graduate school for writing it was really interesting because my mentor um, who I worked with very closely and, and who I adore absolutely um, she kept trying to find my spark and there wasn't one there. <laughs> I guess because I had gotten older and something had happened to me. Like as I had gotten older, I had, I had sort of um, just kind of gotten worn out, you know, and, 
and I and I realized recently in recent months, especially since um, the pandemic, it's like you know, it, it's not an unusual thing that that um, you feel empty inside. This is nothing new. What is fascinating is that that something can come from nothing, and to to have that experience is and to, to be able to 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 be able, become aware of that is is really a wonderful thing. I think. I think so too. And like the catchphrase for this show is before it, everything must be imagined before it can be it can exist. You know, imagination is like that blank notebook, the clean yeah. slate. It's that blank canvas of unlimited possibility. Right. And and the, the thing that I think people get caught up in is the fear that accompanies um, that blank space. Um, they're too afraid, uh, I guess, of making a mistake or suddenly being seen or their imagination being revealed and um, or to find out that, that they don't have anything in there and which is okay, you know, it's okay not to have anything inside of you. It reminds me of years and years ago when I was acting, I remember like in commercials and stuff and just, I had kind of like a weird trajectory where I was doing commercials and theater and stuff. And I remember being off stage and somebody was doing a scene and they were in this the throes of this really emotional scene and they were crying. And then I had a scene with them later and they said to me afterwards, like, like, you don't give me anything. You're not, you're not giving me any, you're not playing into the scene. And, and I remember telling the director, like, you know, I don't, I don't understand like, isn't it okay not to feel anything? And she was like, oh, absolutely. And it, it makes the scene much better. <laughs> you know, so it was like, so, so there, the, the emptiness or the blank canvas is okay. It is, it is possible to, to, um, so it's like, the, what's his name? Um, four minutes and 44 seconds. I forget the name of the, yeah, John Cale or John Cage or something. He wrote this mm-hmm. thing where the pianist comes out and he just sits for four minutes and 44 seconds and doesn't do anything. He doesn't play. That's a blank can- canvas, you know? It's okay, you know? Like, it's okay not to do anything. Um, sooner or later, something's going to happen, you know? And it's okay to, to, to be with that, that emptiness. It's kind of like um, in the movie Pretty Tang when he has a hit song and the song is just silence. Right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now you're talking Pootie Tang and, and I can, All about the Pootie Tang. <laughs> I can get down with that. Definitely. Definitely. And and but you know, that's the funny thing is like Pootie Tang is a great example of that that and that's perfect. You know, that. When he um when all he has to do is show up, you know, and and everybody goes crazy. And it's like there, there's something comical about that, but there's something very, very inspiring about, you know, and it, it, moving past the joke, it's like, you know, like, I am here, I am present. That's a, that, that it's okay. That's enough, you know? Right. 
I think another good one was um, in Kung Fu Panda when he's trying to get that um, secret scroll and he gets the secret scroll and it's blank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing there. And right. that, was, that, was, that was the secret. That was the key. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's, I think it's, it's really easy to lose sight of that. And, and that the responsibility of artists is to, to keep bringing people back to that moment of realization and awareness of, um, you know, everything you need is within, not to get too woo-woo about it, but yeah. So in your, I was going through your blog, and one of the stories that I read was passion. What inspired that story? Can you give us like a quick overview of what it's about? Passion. Passion. Um, I was, I've been working on this novel for a while now, for a few years, and there was a scene in it that I cut out where um, a kid with Down syndrome sees a passion play going on, and he freaks out, and he tries to get Christ off the cross because he sees the blood and he sees the nails and and this is a perfectly healthy and normal reaction to someone being crucified in broad daylight so um the idea was okay well that is the right response so what is it about us that that person is capable of seeing that we cannot see and what is the lesson to learn from that um so, so, and, and the funny thing is, is that, it, again, it, it's, it's, everything I write is kind of anti-American in many ways, because um, in, the, in the Christian right concept of things, you know, like the, the death of Christ is the pinnacle of, of, um, of that story, you know, that's the only thing that, that they focus on. And I find that horrendous because um, there's so many other aspects to that story um, and the life of Christ. So, um, so it was more or less of an attempt to go in that direction to say, okay, here, that that's nice that you've got this this wonderful horror story motif that you can always use as a guidepost. And excuse you, and you, you know, you say, "Oh, he died for our sins, and now I can do whatever I want," which tends to be the the reaction. Um, but rather, no, 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 like that's horrific, and that will always be a horrific thing, and nobody should be experiencing that, and that's the end of that, you know. And that let's focus more on on how he deals with that existential problems, you know. Um, which he did deal with in, 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 in the story, but all of that stuff is ignored, you know? So, right. so why focus on the gruesome element? Like, what's the point? You know, it, it's almost childish. It's almost like, um, like a, uh, a, um, what's that called? A, a rubberneck or a, a gawker, you know, like, Ooh, I wonder if there's any blood on the asphalt, you know, like, it's stupid. It's childish. I totally understand. Um, so in your story, Kind Eyes, it's about a kid who kills himself and he he comes back again. And then later on, another one of him comes back again, but he's a little bit more messed up than the first one. 
Were these like future selves, past selves? These are um, these are uh, <clears throat> sort of copies, <clears throat> um, copies that come out of. Well, as I was saying earlier, you know, there's an obsession with um, escapism and reboots, and and there's that. But then there's also um, uh, school shootings happening. Uh, not now. Thank goodness, but um, happening on a consistent, fairly consistent basis, and and so the collective conscious of America says, um, "Oh, that's unfortunate. What do you want to have for dinner? Um, oh, that's unfortunate. What movie do you want to go see tonight? Oh, that's unfortunate. Um, do you want to take you want to take a test drive in a Tesla? It's like there's this cons- consistent narrative of Oh, another child was murdered or killed themselves or, or, you know, whatever it is. That's too bad. What would you like to, um, what do you want to order from Grubhub? So it's, it's, it's this constant cycle of escapism. And, um, so I kind of wanted to address that in some ways <clears throat> that, that there, there's, there's something kind of sick and disturbed about that. So I guess you have the impression that Americans tend to, turn away from certain tragedies? Um, it depends on what the tragedy is. If it's um, something that slightly inconveniences them, then it's tragic. But if it's a child being murdered in, in, in school, it doesn't matter. Or if, it, if it's an African-American being choked to death in broad daylight, um, it doesn't matter. But if they have to um, wear a mask to go into to Walmart, then suddenly it's it's on the level of Interesting. Um, so this story, Spindrift, I had trouble understanding that one. Can you shed some light on what that story is about and what the moral of it is? What, what world it is? Uh, uh, Spindrift? Yeah, what, 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 what was the second part of the question? Oh, uh, what's the moral of that story? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, okay, so uh, a lot of the stuff I focused on is uh, toxic masculinity and um so it really just it's just a um and it's basically just a a portrait of toxic masculinity so you have the woman who is diagnosed with you know terminal illness has never seen the ocean asks her neighbor to um drive her and um, he turns out to be this just disgusting, despicable human being who is raping her repeatedly. And, and so it's, it's on the level, it's on a level that's so horrifying and so upsetting. And yet none of it is supernatural. It's all within the realm of the real. And, um, and then as we get towards the end of the story, the supernatural starts to come in with the um, the other character who um, who had a, uh, also an equally tragic experience in Bos- during the Bosnian War as a a, um, a refugee as a Bosniak, and um, and she's able to sort of cross the threshold between um, the living and the dead, and she's able to have a dialogue with the ghost of this woman, and then describe uh, the ocean to her. Um, and so the, the, 
What was the question? I forgot. <laughs> oh, yeah, we were just talking about the story of Spindrift and the moral of it. Oh, the moral, the moral. So the moral is that, um, the moral of the story is that uh, it's, it's the only thing, the only thing that's going to liberate you and allow you to have, um, to, to, to have some kind of an inner life or a dream is to, to intentionally um, annihilate toxic masculinity, um, intentionally uh, uh, castrate or annihilate that aspect, um, almost to the level of a terrorist, I guess, in some ways. Like, there needs to be <clears throat> an abrupt end to, um, you know, this, this, this concept of, of um, non-consensual sex and things like that. Um, a lot of it, the, the, Ka the Kavanaugh, um, the Kavanaugh hearings and, and all of that kind of sparked a lot, a lot of this sentiment about just how horrific and, and on what a scale, um, huge scale, uh, women experience uh, rape and non-consensual sex and, uh, across the, the, the globe. And um, that there needs to be some measure of retaliation. And um, in Greek mythology, you have um, uh, Uranus's uh, uh, consistently raping, I think it's Gaia. And, and then she, she asks one of her sons to, to castrate him and throw his, his, <clears throat> um, his, his member, as it were, into the ocean and from the ocean comes Aphrodite. Um, so out of this pain comes uh, pure beauty and pure joy and pure love. But it's, it ha there has to be castration. There has to be some, not literal, but there has to be a figurative sense of castration that has to happen um, in order to get back to beauty, to get back to possibility, to get back to the feminine essentially. And um, so that, that's the moral. So you're saying rapists should have their Johnsons cut off? <laughs> it, it, in the story, that's what happens. I think she, she bites off his, his penis and then at a later point, she throws it into the ocean. And, and then he goes in after it and then drowns. So it's a, it's a good ending for him, you know, and it's, it, there's some level of, of reclaiming herself with that, but it's like, there has to be some, there has to be some change in the way men interact with women, you know, and, and it's sort of like Malcolm X said, you know, by any means necessary, it's like, you have to take those steps, you have to start doing it in a demonstrative way to to make corrections. So no, we're not going around cutting people Johnson's off. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but there needs to be um, an awakening and a, an awareness of toxic masculinity. So while things are falling to the bottom of the ocean, one of your stories, Threshold, you have somebody swimming to the bottom of a lake. What is that symbolic of? Um, sometimes... Uh, I think um, we, again, with the feminine and the masculine, um, uh, 
I think feminine, the feminine aspects are much more aware of um, when there's uh, when things are out of balance and when evil is overwhelming the possibility of good. So um, what the character is doing essentially is, you know, saying, oh, this is an evil element and I'm going to bury it. Someone else might find it, but I need to make this correction for her now in the present moment. So she bear, she, she, she takes the, um, the suitcase and it's filled with shadows and darkness and she just, you know, puts it in, in the bottom of the ocean and then she um, comes back up and she's like, okay, equilibrium, I've, I've maintained equilibrium. It, it, it's, it's more of a, it's, there, there's no Johnson cutting, but um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a much more mellow approach to the same idea of, of oh, you know, like there's stranger danger here and, and I recognize it as much as, as, as that. And it's okay that I recognize it as that. And I'm going to treat it accordingly. Because what you find in, in um, American literature is uh, in, in, in narrative, in the narrative stories, in, in all the narratives, you find that men make these, um, their overtures and women submit and there's no, or they, they let the stranger in and they're changed by it. And it's like, no, like we're done with that. They don't have to be changed by that, that's bullshit. And it's a patriarchal concept. So we're much better off with, no, like, she sees what it is, and she's going to bury it, and that's the end. Excellent. Um, your story, Nice Phone, was it inspired by my favorite place in the world, Trenton, New Jersey? Nice Phone. Um, <clears throat> um, in some ways, yes. It, I, but it was really more about um, the way people tend to um, – well, I, I think in – in my own personal experiences, um, there's with racism, like they're not not being treated uh, that way. But my own racist tendencies that are that we all have, you know, because it's kind of like this this reptilian thing that we have inside of us. But um, I do notice that people say, "Oh no, I'm not racist," um, but then there'll be this really slight thing that they do that. It's like no, like you're totally racist. Like, like I remember a coworker saying something about, um, oh, you know, they have welfare sessions about how to get on welfare in black churches, and I'm thinking like, you know, you could really look at that in either direction. Like, yeah, they need to have workshops about how to get on welfare because like the system is so fucked up, you know, like that they they need help, you know. And then he's looking at, at it as, you know, it's just, it's just this bullshit system and they're, they're lazy or whatever. And I, I just, I don't want anything to do with that. And um, so I remember overhearing someone, I think it was on social security or something, you know, like somebody saying like, uh, you know, and this has to do with like what Reagan called welfare queens and things like that. Like, Oh, here's here's a woman standing online, African American woman standing online, uh, waiting for uh, you know, at Social Security, and she's got this 
iPhone 11 or whatever. So it's like the, the reptilian mind, white male reptilian mind goes, gee, she can afford that, but she's on welfare, you know? So right away, it's like, oh my God, like there's, there's a treasure trove of issues there because one of, one of the basic moral things that you learn in kindergarten is that when you give somebody something, it's up, up to them to do what they want with that thing. So if it's money or whatever it is, like that's their money. Like you can't, you can't uh, uh, hold sway over what they do with what, what's being given to them. So, so that was the whole, that whole part of it. But then it was like the flip side of it is that we all treat each other in horrible ways and that um, there are stories about parents selling their children to buy a phone, to get a phone. And so, so it's almost like the phone becomes like the, the middleman in the story of like, like these horrible things happening all around this simple object that is supposed to be, you know, like a liberating, empowering thing. And it's not in some level, on some level. It kind of brings to mind for me that old adage, don't judge a book by its cover. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, there's that on, 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 on that level of like, cause, cause the character and, and that's the other interesting thing about this is that as a, what a 42 year old white man, um, I don't feel like I should be writing a story about an African American man. And so I decided to do that anyway, because, <clears throat> you know, it's writing about the other, it's writing about what I don't know about. And, um, and I think, I think that's important to, to keep doing, like to keep writing about what you, what you're not, what you don't know and what you're unaware of and how you might be affecting others. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. Like I added a little more to the story um, afterwards, which is what's nice about a blog is that you can go back and kind of change things a little bit, tweak it. And um, I sort of added more elements about, I put myself in the story and said like, you know, I'm the problem. Like it's, it's this concept that I can think, I think that I have authority over <clears throat> that kind of a story or that kind of a narrative that's also problematic, you know, like I have to be more open to the unknown and to, to, to embracing things that I'm not aware of. And, and with Trenton, coming back to what you were saying, with Trenton, like <clears throat> there's definitely problems with um, the way people who live outside of its um, borders um, treating it like a demilitarized zone you know, and, and then it's a no man's land or whatever. And, um, and I think that's horrific, you know, absolutely. But it's systemic. I mean, there are people in uh, that, I've heard stories about people at Princeton University saying like, oh, well, we don't, like, we don't go past Ryder University, like we don't drive past uh, the, you know, that, merging onto 295. We don't get closer mm -hmm. to Trenton than that. That's about as far as we go. 
and it's like, okay, well, um, you're part of the problem, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your book that you're writing, Negative Paradise? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it's about a, um, a guy who's kind of like fixated on this woman that he sees on the train in, in, uh, in San Francisco, and he, um, he just flat out starts uh, stalking her, and it turns out that she's the leader of this quasi-gnostic cult. Um, and uh, he gets invested in, you know, he becomes a member, and he gets in, very much involved and entangled in it. But um, uh, the whole idea of the novel is that it's not the cult that's the problem. In fact, um, I forget who said this, but they said to be in a cult is to be human. So there is some really, there's, a, there's humanity in that desire to be part of something. Um, and it's not really the cult that's the problem, it's the the power structure and which is always patriarchal, even if it's a woman in charge, um, it ends up defaulting to that. So it becomes much more about, um, you know, keeping people in a constant uh, state of uncertainty and panic, pretty much like the, the capitalist system, you know, that we have around the world, um, you know, keeping people in a constant state of like, where's my next pay paycheck going to come from and, you know, this and that. So the cult ends up going back into that kind of form. Um, but yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's talks about all different kinds of things. And the title is more or less about how, um, you know, like when, when it's a biblical reference, it's like when, when Adam and Eve left the garden of Eden or paradise, um, paradise was a lot better off. Like that, that's now paradise can thrive because these lovers are gone. The lovers and the sense of, oh, woe is me. I have my own little drama. I have my own little life. That's the thing that creates chaos and, and the egoism behind it, you know? So um, it plays into that as well. So there's a lot of different stuff going on. But um, it's basically, yeah, it's a novel about a cult. So it's fun stuff. Hmm. I find interesting in what you just said is that, you know, as human beings, the desire to belong to a group is part of our nature. It's, 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 it's the human in us. Hmm. But to lead other humans, the person who's actually leading them is almost inhuman or inhumane. Right. Right. Such a weird irony. Yeah, it, well, it, it's, um, but again, it's, 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 it's the patriarchal sentiment that, that, that the patriarchal element of it that, that tends to, to speak more about what you're saying. Like, so, so if the leadership ends up becoming, um, like master and slave or, or, um, you know, like, no, like, like you, you, I, I'm going to keep you in a constant state of, of not knowing what's going to happen next. 
you know, um, if, if, you're, if you're going to be, to stay with the group or you're going to be ejected from the group. Um, kind of like with the, um, like in America where you have, and in the South, I'm sure, where um, if someone is gay, like the father can formally eject them from the family um, for just for, for, for their sexual preferences or whatever. So it's the same idea. It's like, okay, well, that, and that's the leadership mode that we tend to default to, you know, and it's a corrupt uh, system. And it's, it's, I don't think it's ever really come to any good or fruition. I mean, people can talk about great things that have happened with um, uh, men, uh, you know, leadership, but then you always have an equivalent that, that's absolutely negative and horrific. So, um, but you don't have a lot of women doing that. I mean, you have women in history, but you know, talk, they don't talk about it as much. My wife was just saying the other day, it's so interesting how right now the, the, the countries with women in, leadership, in the leadership role are doing much better with the pandemic than the ones with um, the patriarchal male uh, leadership. So it's interesting. So, do you think there's a connection between your art and your spirituality? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think they're one and the same. I mean, I practice transcendental meditation now. So I think that, um, you know, like, like that gone deep and kind of, um, as David Lynch says, catching the big fish, you know, like that, that's definitely something that, that, I embrace, you know, and, and following your intuition and uh, stuff like that. Um, stuff like that. <laughs> so, you know, like, like it, 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 that's the important thing is to follow your intuition. And I think in spirituality, that's something that, that maybe doesn't get talked about that often, but, but, um, you know, it's more about letting go, but, you know, you have to let go before you can follow your intuition, I guess. As part of it, so yeah, yeah, they're definitely tangled up together. Have to let go before you follow your intuition. It's beautiful. Thank you. What is your uh, day job? Mm. Well, <clears throat> right now I'm actually an English tutor uh, at um, uh, Princeton High School. And I'm also for uh, kids that are like homebound, so they, you know, things like that. And um, I'm also doing a uh, writing workshop on Thursday nights. Um, and what else am I doing? Oh, and then I'm an aide like during the day, but right now that's kind of up in the air because of everything that's happened. So, like, I try to help out where I can through the power of zoom um but it's it's kind of challenging these days but yeah i teach mostly so i know you used to be an uber driver do you have any good uber driver stories oh uber oh um yeah i remember you know like i have a hearing impairment and and um one time i picked up a, a young lady who was almost completely blind and completely deaf and I always you know like I think it's it, it I think somehow I knew she told me that and I thought to myself okay 
okay, great. It's time for us to commiserate. You know, I'm thinking like we can talk, we can kind of have like a little bitching session, you know, about how hard it is to get people to, to speak louder and this and that. And, and yeah, we did a little bit of that, but then she just had this like beatific smile and she was on her way somewhere to, to meet family or something. And she was in just the most pleasant mood. And I just remember thinking, I'm such a schmuck because like, like I get dragged down in all this um, woe is me stuff. And there are people who are dealing with stuff way harder than, than I, way harder than the stuff I'm dealing with. And they're, they're smiling through it, you know? And so, but there's other stories too, but they're, they're not nice like that. They're weird, you know, but is that what you mean? You want a weird story? Anything that means something to you. Well, that meant something to me. Um, definitely. I remember one time I, I had these these college kids that were heading to the airport, Philadelphia airport. And, you know, they were kind of the guys that I just did not like in college, like dude bros, you know, who just had like zero personality. Um and they were piled up in my car and they're heading to the airport. We're all heading to the airport. And I'm listening to them go on and on about like some friend of theirs who had like four DUIs, but like daddy paid off all the DUIs and everything. And we're about five minutes away from Philly airport. And one of the kids says, oh shit, I forgot my passport. And I was in heaven because that meant I had to turn around in traffic. Like it was like four o'clock on a Friday afternoon in the summer. So it was super busy. And I was in heaven because it was going to cost them twice as much to, <laughs> because of their, their, their youthful, you know, idiocy or whatever. So, and, and so I turned around and I got this dumb old grin on my face and and they were quiet the rest of the way. They weren't doing the stupid, you know, uh, yo, yo, you know, this, this, and that, like, um, stupid conversation. They were quiet and kind of morose because they just had to spend an extra $120 or whatever it was. So that was nice, too. <laughs> Karma. Karma, baby. It's a bitch. Indeed it is. So do you have any uh, good books or music that you'd like to recommend to my listeners? Uh, I've been reading Don DeLillo a lot. I just started reading White Noise. I, I've never read any of his stuff, which is kind of weird to me, but um, he's really an interesting writer. Um, I always recommend Shirley Jackson, um, who wrote... Uh, um, uh, it's on Netflix now. I can, uh, the Haunting of Hill House. Although the, the Netflix thing is like completely different from the book. But um, she's written many other novels that are really fascinating. And she's just an incredible writer. Um, and uh, I always recommend uh, Haruki Murakami. Um, and uh, as for music, I, I've been listening to uh, all kinds of stuff. What was that? You, you suggested something to me. We almost went to go see them, too. Um, oh, Acid Mothers in the Temple of the UFO. Acid Mothers in the Temple of the UFO, yes. I, I got to get back into them. 
How about the captain? I I've been avoiding the captain. I've been I've been, <laughs> I, I've been avoiding I've been avoiding um Beefheart because I I have a problem with the the fact that it's uh what, what would you call it like um trout mask replica is organized chaos or whatever right so I I I, I don't know I'm, I'm I'm still struggling with that but. But um, I have been listening to uh, King Crimson um, and uh, Link Ray. I've been listening to, and I'm also starting to get into like adult contemporary, which is troubling. But I, I think I just have to go with it. You know, like I'm 42 years old. What? What? Who am I kidding? You know, like. I'm going to have to just start listening to Steve Winwood and Rod Stewart and, you know, Don Henley. It's, 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 I don't know what's happening to me, Gary. <laughs> oh, Although, I don't know. I, I've been just listening to a uh, electric wizard, <laughs> <laughs> like this heavy <laughs> doom yes, stuff. Yes. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I, I, I do listen to Sabbath and I do listen to, you know, like, I mean, it's in regular rotation, but, I don't know. Lately, I've just been. Maybe it's it's the the virus or something. Maybe I'm just mutating and turning more towards mellower music. I don't know. It's weird. It is weird. All right. So just hang with me for a minute, and I'm going to wrap it up. Okay. Okay. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you. All right. So um, next week we have Kitsy Duncan from the Oddity Files on Amazon Prime. Uh, she's a great guest. I also have coming up Andre Doshimhala, author of five books on Zen and teaching Zen Master, and Rachel Celeste Astrologer. Please like and review my podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find me. If anyone wants to be a guest or has any feedback on the show, I can be emailed at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. And remember, everything that is was first imagined. So see you next week, and thank you for listening. Oh, yeah, and I almost forgot. You can buy my book, Enlightenment Guaranteed, the only book on Zen you'll ever need on Amazon for only $5.99. Thank you for listening, and have a great week.